put the need first, let the technology follow. Welcome to episode 397 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. I'm Lisa Gonzalez. As more people become better connected with broadband, especially in rural areas where hospitals are few and far between, the healthcare industry is finding new ways to use telehealth applications. This week, Christopher talks with Danica Tynes from the Georgia Tech Research Institute about what's working in telehealth and ways to move forward. Danica talks about policy, funding, and ways to get the community involved in order to improve the likelihood of success for new telehealth applications. Now here's Christopher talking with Danica Tynes from the Georgia Tech Research Institute. Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. I'm Christopher Mitchell at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, normally in Minneapolis, but today in Raleigh, where it's much warmer than it normally is in Minneapolis this time of year. I'm speaking with Danica Tynes, the Senior Research Associate of the Georgia Tech Research Institute. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Christopher. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you here. I'm still in North Carolina. Uh, We're here at the NC State, where the Institute on Emerging Issues is having a conference, uh, the Reconnect, part of the Reconnect series, in which we're talking about today technological opportunity. Your specialty is telehealth. And I'm I'm very excited to dive into this, to, to talk about what's happening today, where we're going, and your panel, which is going to be about what is what's possible in the best uh, future that we could have in which we all have great access and everyone is connected i think it's going to be a great panel and i recommend people go back and stream it once they listen to this interview but i'd like to first ask you to just tell me about the georgia tech research institute please gtri georgia tech research institute is an arm of um, georgia institute of technology so it is focused on how to innovate Um, in different organizations. They do a lot of uh, Department of Defense work, of course. Uh, Right now, one of the projects that I'm working on is to modernize the uh, Medicaid uh, management information system. And so we're building the uh, systems platform and we're taking it into the cloud. And what that does, it allows for more um, more modularity, um, better competition amongst vendors, uh, as well as more scalability. And so when we take uh, solutions into the cloud, we're also reducing the cost to taxpayers. Um, and so we're bringing innovation to how we do common things like support our Medicaid and Medicare populations. Wonderful. And I just have to say, probably some of the most important stuff. One of the things that, that we can talk about that I suspect is true is that even if we lived in a world right now where there was really widespread broadband access to everyone and everyone could afford it, we would still be limited by the kind of processes that are being updated in, in your work. Oh, yeah, absolutely. 100%. And so that's, I think it's one of the things for those of us that really focus on broadband expansion, we want to also have a sense of reality, which is that the things that are limiting telehealth um, aren't just broadband capacity, but um, it is one of the factors. So um, let me start by asking you, what is working in telehealth today? Like, not not where are we going to be soon, but what's been going on in, in 2019? What was working well in telehealth? So I can probably couch the answer to that in an anecdote of a project that I did in Mississippi. I was working with the North Mississippi Health Services. Uh, North Mississippi Health Services has a hospital system centralized in Tupelo, Mississippi, and then 20 
23 other clinics that are spread across uh, rural northern Mississippi. Mm-hmm. And so this hub and spoke model made them a really great candidate for a telehealth solution uh, because they had the infrastructure as well as the sp- specialists needed in the urban center in Tupelo uh, that were, would benefit the rural population. Our first case, our first uh, patient who came through this program, she was a diabetic patient. She lived about an hour and a half from Tupelo. She had two jobs, uh, a morning job, an evening job. And so she had missed her last five diabetes appointments with a specialist who was in Tupelo. Uh, She also had trouble securing um, transportation. Mm So here we have, now we've implemented telehealth, and in her local clinic, with her her provider, with her nurse, whom she knows very well, she's able to now take a telehealth visit and close the care gap and get now a care plan to help manage her diabetes. And the added silver lining that we got out of that was the benefit of having the nurse and her primary care physician on the other end of that synchronous visit. Um, to hear what the specialist was actually offering. So it was more of an integrated care model. So Mm -hmm. now uh, they could reinforce the messaging of the diabetes specialist. So that was our first, um, that was our first patient. And I, I, I loved, I felt so close to uh, being able to make an impact in the world when Mm -hmm. she was the first one to come through. Um, But there's a few things that made that possible. Um, Number one is there was policy in place. So Mississippi uh, determined in their legislature um, maybe five years ago that uh, private uh, payers had to reimburse telehealth services at the same level as face-to-face. That was number one. Uh, That is not a federally mandated thing. It is encouraged by CMS. CMS has Um, you know, models in place for telehealth reimbursement, but it's up to the states to adopt their own legislation in that regard and allocate those funds. So that was the first thing that was in place. And this is, it's a wonderful, we live in a world of of abbreviations in telecom, but what is CMS? Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services. And so, uh, you know, we have a huge population um, that benefits from Medicaid and Medicare services, and many of the many of those populations are found in rural areas or even urban areas. Mm-hmm. And to that extent, is if we are offering a technological service um, that we don't want to we don't want to edge out those who are benefiting from a federal. Uh, healthcare plan, right? Right. And then just for people who aren't as familiar, Medicaid, a lot of children get coverage through Medicaid, a lot of people who are disabled. Um, you know, it's a, it's a vulnerable population typically. And so these are the people who often have the hardest trouble getting to um, Tupelo um, or another major population center where you may have the, the, the specialists. Right. And frankly, I don't know what the person of Mississippians is um, leveraging those federal programs. But I think despite where you live, whether it's Jackson or, Mm -hmm. you know, outside of Jackson, I think that uh, it's probably a high percentage. And so you don't want to further marginalize um, those who participate in that program by offering services that they can't benefit from. Right. Now, you were saying number one was policy that made this happen. What's the second thing? Funding. 
<laughs> uh, funding, right? So um, North Mississippi Health Services, they obtained a large grant for their startup costs. Um, uh, they also had the hospital that was able to to pick up some of the funds and allocate the resources, like the IT department mm-hmm. uh, needed to shift over their resources to help make this happen. So I think uh, having financial resources up front is really huge. One of the first things that we did to identify the feasibility of telehealth, because it's not feasible everywhere. Um, and I'll come back around to my recommendation for when to adopt telehealth and when not to. Okay. Because uh, there are cases of when not to. Um, we get really excited about telehealth as a silver bullet. Uh, but funding was really important. One of the things that we did before we went out to all of, before we implemented all of the sites is we kicked the tires on their broadband. Was the broadband fast enough? Could it uh, detract from the experience of telehealth? If you're mm-hmm. having now a same-time real visit kind of over video with your physician and you get cut off, that's going to take away from your appreciation of the experience. It may, may make you distrust technology, and now you're moving in the wrong direction of where you want to go. Mm-hmm. So I think having the proper uh, funding in place to have all of those fundamental things, the technology, we had to buy uh, carts for to provide telehealth. So we would take the carts into the pr- provider area, so into the clinics or into the um, skilled nursing facilities, and we would post them there. And then we had the peripherals so you could hear the heartbeat. You could listen into, you know, the mouth, into the ears. And, you know, the, one of the responses from the physicians was, wow, you know, these peripherals offer such an amazing amazing option for me that gives me better results than in my naked eye, mm-hmm. right? Because they right. can take pictures and so forth. So, and record it too. For That's for, exactly yeah. right. Um, the other thing is that they had the infrastructure in place. So, um, so the network already had electronic health records implemented. And so they were able to, um, they were able to interface these two technologies. Uh, I found this out a long time ago, working with University of Texas Medical Branch, they tried to implement telehealth without having their EHR, their health records in Mm -hmm. place. Well, that's really disruptive to the visit. So you don't want to not look someone in the eye, a patient in the eye, because you're here talking about, you know, you know, their health. Right. Mm-hmm. So you right. want to be present with them. Well, in uh, without an electronic health record, you have to look down and flip through a chart. And so uh, so having a setup where the physician can actually look at the patient and kind of glance over uh, to the side to look at the chart is really helpful so that it maintains that connection since we are now talking through a TV, essentially. Right. I think as well, uh, another thing that was uh, really important uh, to have in place and to make that successful was the training. And in the conference today, we talk about workforce readiness um, and you know inclusion and literacy. And I think that was really, really key in making that rollout successful is that along the way, we engaged all of the appropriate stakeholder communities, the providers, the patients, those in the community, we actually put out uh, articles in the newspaper so people could start talking about it. And, you know, some of the providers thought, 
you know, hey, are you going to take away our jobs? Right. Yeah, I can imagine that. Right. <laughs> are, is this why you're taking away our jobs? And and so it was really interesting. Some of the perceptions we heard back in advancing the conversation uh, and under in opening up the communications. And so it was no, actually, we're here to help you do your job better and how and help you keep your community healthy. Um, you know, we had, uh, you know, IT departments that were just kind of going, well, this is just one more fancy thing that they're throwing on us. Didn't get it. Right. They're not going to, they're not going to call you when something breaks. Right? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Or, uh, and now you have to change all the way that you do billing. You have to update that into the system. Mm-hmm. You have to create a code because now this is a telehealth <laughs> visit, right? So you have all of these considerations of who are the stakeholders who are impacted. And then of course the patient. Well, I don't even like going to the doctor in the first place. And now I have to use this technology thing that I'm not comfortable with. And uh, indeed, we did do surveys uh, subsequent to uh, the rollout to understand the level of satisfaction or frustration of using telehealth. And the satisfaction level was, you know, just as high, if not higher, as in as in-person visits. I think those are probably the key things. Oh, probably one last thing I would say is top-down reinforcement. I think it's very important. Uh, we heard we heard some great speakers today um, talking about getting the role allocated to have the conversation around digital inclusion, but not necessarily the funding. And so, <laughs> when we see leadership uh, not only not only stand behind the idea, but stand behind it uh, with funding or reinforcement or talking about it, that really helps things to gel and take hold. There's so many things I want to react to because it's, it's fascinating. But the first one is, is that I don't know if people appreciate this. I'm, my mind is always blown at there's really two major things that we can do as far as I understand. And this is an oversimplification for someone who's not working directly in healthcare policy. But if there's two things that we could do to try to drive our costs, long-term costs of healthcare down, it's better managing people with diabetes and better managing people that have long-term cognitive decline, right? And so this is a big deal. Like if you can make sure that people are able to go to their doctor's appointments and more easily and take it more seriously and have follow up, that's it's a major deal for the future of healthcare in America, right? Oh yeah, absolutely, hundred percent. So um, now the interesting thing to me is I feel like for people who are trying to figure out how to get connections into the home, there's this vision of of okay, what can we do for telehealth in the home? And I've talked with some people about that in the past, but I'm just curious about your reaction because you smiled as soon as I started saying that. Um, is is the better solution right now basically focusing on these these centers that are within the community, making sure you have a very high quality sort of managed experience there, and and that's the the goal right now to get to. I could say a, a proper generalization just across the board in healthcare is that people always do better at home. Uh, and we have a huge uh, chronic disease uh, challenge, not just here, but everywhere uh, in the world. Uh, chronic diseases continue to climb. And one of the most promising ways to address that challenge, uh, because we have limited physician 
um, and caregiver resources uh, to, you know, to take care of patients every day in the hospital, one of the uh, plausible viable solutions for that is remote monitoring. And what and the thing about remote monitoring goes back again to uh, workforce literacy is that it necess- it necessitates data and people who can absorb data, understand data, understand how to create trigger mechanisms. If the uh, remote monitoring data that's coming back from a patient is outside of what one would deem normal um, workflows, that then what happens if there's some sort of alert to the physician? Now what do we do from there? But it's a really viable option for managing chronic disease. In fact, uh, in the se- in the session later, I'll introduce a couple of data points around uh, how telehealth has demonstrated to reduce uh, chronic care um, patient visits to uh, to the ER, which is a huge cost to uh, taxpayers, right? Mm-hmm. So I think you're, you're right on by being interested in that conversation because it's one of the most viable applications of telehealth where we could see, you know, outcome impacts. And when you say the, the data, I mean, we're not necessarily talking about invasive things like, you know, um, uh, things that you'd have maybe have an implant for. It might just be a weight, right? It might be a weight, right? It could be... Um, a blood pressure, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but then off of that data, for providers to really, and you know, we're talking about what's happening now, but where do you take that in the future? And we always are trying to look at how do we make this scalable? Once you have your infrastructure in place, what do you do then? How do you create more information with few resources? Um, and data is one way to do it. So if I'm a physician and I have and I have remote monitoring capabilities for I don't know 10,000 uh, diabetes patients, uh, I may want to look at the aggregate of all of that data mm-hmm. and see if there's a way that I can help you better, help you more, you know, advance and shift the needle on outcomes. And so that's when data becomes really important. But our ability to absorb data. Um, also, and interpret data also needs to heighten simultaneously. I can imagine a situation in which you would say, you know, um, we found that the, you have this trend, and 90% of people that have this trend, this thing is coming down the line, and let's try to address it earlier. That's right. That's right. Exactly. So we find ourselves in much more proactive stance when we can understand the data. So you said that you wanted to come back to where telehealth might not be the better solution. I want to make sure we we talk about that. Yeah. So I feel like what we always want to remember and why we choose the field of health to participate in is because we want our population to be well, all of our populations to be well. And for that, I think we always need to start with the need. Every community uh, is faced with different cultures, Mm -hmm. different needs, different barriers. I think you have some legislative barriers here in North Carolina for telehealth that might not be the same barrier that you have in a Mississippi where the, the health burden is a lot larger. So everybody has different barriers. And I think it's making sure that we stay connected to what the need is. So, for example, 
Uh, let's say a community is faced with an overwhelming um, burden of obesity, and we see how that translates into chronic disease. That's one of the social determinants there. Uh, so, so maybe instead of saying, ah, telehealth can help, it fixes everything. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe maybe the local high school can open up the gym uh, after hours and share it with a community that may not have one. Um, maybe uh, maybe we start a you know a community health walk and everybody goes outside five, outside at five right. o'clock and does it. So there are some. N- some human things that we can do without technology that can help address the need rather than trying to throw technology at it. So I would just always say, put the need first, let the technology follow. As far as I'm concerned, technology is zeros and ones. That's it. We can build anything. Anything you want built, we can build. It sounds like someone from the Georgia Institute of Technology. <laughs> yes. Oh, yes, because lots of research that we do. I think uh, I just read an internal article the other day where we're about to, where we're offering to replace the power grid with batteries, right? <laughs> you can build anything. Mm-hmm. So it's really get connected with your community, get connected with your social determinants, get connected with what can actually move the needle and create change in your health outcomes and then decide what you want to apply to it. This is going to be a weird, seems like a weird tangent, but it's going to come back around. Gotcha. Um, Last week was National Girls and Women in Sports Week. Um, A lot of states celebrate a specific day. And for the past 12 years or so, I've done photography for the Minnesota version of that um, because I moonlight as a photographer and um, do a lot of sports photography. So through them, I met this group. There was a group being honored for doing granny basketball. Uh, in which I think uh, is women who are over 50, many of whom uh, did not have opportunities to play because we had no Title IX when they were growing up. And so they have formed these leagues in which they play with their own a set of rules that's appropriate for their age and mobility and, and just to have fun. And, you know, what you were saying about telehealth, just the costs of establishing granny basketball leagues are such that if you prevent one person out of like probably 20 teams from developing a, a, health, um, a health problem, that has paid for it. And yet these granny basketball leagues are looking for grants sometimes to be able to get court time and things like that. And so, you know, I think it's, it's really important to think about these things about being creative and not just saying telehealth, 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 but to recognize that we need to you know, figure out how to make people more active in a lot of ways. Right. Yeah. We don't want it to become this buzz thing. And uh, like I said, the, the more times we try to apply a technology that isn't appropriate for the, its application, uh, the more distrust we have in technology. And that's opposite the direction we want to go. Right. Yes. And I just one of the things that we talk about a lot in, in health is that the the cost of building broadband networks, you know, roughly in, in rural North Carolina, I think you could assume it's on the order of I don't know, $2,500, $5,000, depending on of uh, one-time cost to connect a home with a fiber optic network. And it sounds like a lot of money. In the healthcare field, it's not a lot of money. And so I just feel like it's useful to like break these frames of reference. We get caught of thinking about what is a lot of money in, in healthcare. Millions of dollars is a lot of money per person. <laughs> so... Um, so anyway, I appreciate that, um, the context of how to, how to think about these things. So I feel like in telemedicine, a lot of us, I certainly do immediately think rural solution, but I'm guessing there's urban implications for telemedicine as well. And I'm curious, what are we overlooking there? 
Hugely. So where telehealth is, has evolved to um, is it was an access gap closure tool initially. And now I read articles literally every day of new applications of telehealth. This morning an article came out about applying telehealth to reduce physician burnout. Go figure. Mm -hmm. So now it's not just about closing physical access gaps to care like rural urban. Now it's about uh, education. It's about asynchronous. So you have synchronous, same time, real time telehealth, and asynchronous, which is it could be a slightly disjointed. Email, like, for instance. I have a, I have a non-emergency right. question from exactly. my doctor. Exactly. So non-synchronous. So both of those types are being fully leveraged in so many different and innovative ways uh, that, the, that the application of telehealth is not just for the rural community. Mm-hmm. Where I think you'll see a huge impact, though, is in the rural community, similar to the first anecdote I offered up about Mississippi and the diabetic patient who couldn't access her care, and now she can. And so it's so easy to see the impact of that. But then as you start kind of expanding, oh, well, it's basically television, right? It's just Mm -hmm. two-way communication between individuals. And so we can solve all the problems of the world that way, right? I I don't think that rural health is now the driver for telehealth, but it is certainly a tried and true and viable application for it. Yeah. When you put it like that, it's it's the situation, you know, we used to um, e games, e this, e that, and then over time, it's it's not e anymore. It's just what is. And in, right. in ten years, there's not going to be telehealth. There will be health, right? That's exa- <laughs> exactly right. And you know, I offer up telehealth. It's really an adjunct to healthcare. Uh, and when it works well is when it becomes part of how we do business. Mm-hmm. It's not just this kind of side appendage that's a fun project over here, but it's just part of the workflow. It's what we do. And eventually it will look like that. So let me, let me ask you, is there, is there anything you want to wrap up with? Yeah, absolutely. So just a quick story about how I've used telehealth um, is that there is an app uh, called Doc on Demand. I was driving through rural Mississippi and I was feeling a cold coming on. And so I pulled over to the side of the road and I went online. I logged into the app and uh, I had an immediate appointment available. It cost me $40. I was out of pocket, but I was in the middle of Mississippi. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so what else could I do? And so they said, okay, you know, we can, you know, give you a prescription for this medication. Where's your nearest nearest pharmacy? So I let them know the address of the nearest pharmacy. I just pulled up to one. And so they called in my prescription right then, and I was able to go. And then I was able to go about my day working. Um, And so it was a real satisfier for for how I went about my day. I wasn't standing Mm -hmm. on lines. I wasn't waiting in a doctor's office. Searching Yelp for the closest doctor. Exactly. (laughs) exactly. I wasn't trying to find, you know, the closest pharmacy. You know, they kind of told me where I was and Mm -hmm. what I needed to do. And so um, under circumstances like that, I think that can save us so much time, uh, save families so much time, going to doctor's offices, taking their kids out of school. I think as we start to get more comfortable with the technology, we're going to actually see that becoming our new reality great thank you so much 
Thank you. That was Christopher talking with Danica Tynes from the Georgia Tech Research Institute. They were discussing telehealth and how it's making healthcare more accessible for more communities. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this podcast and the other podcasts from ILSR, Building Local Power, and the Local Energy Rules Podcast. You can access them anywhere you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support in any amount helps keep us going. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song, Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons. This was episode 397 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.